You ever thought how often in uh, movies, especially on the big screen, uh, you see a character, whether it's a hero or a villain, oftentimes that character in the way that they die characterizes that person or it's what stamps into uh, their life, their legacy, uh, and becomes a lasting remembrance of that person. You think for even uh, the, the, the blockbuster hit Titanic, right? Jack, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, his famous last words in the movie, Never let go, Rose. Promise me you'll never let go. Only moments before she tosses him from the floating boat, our floating door into the icy Atlantic Ocean. Or Braveheart, where William Wallace is shouting freedom at the top of his lungs, only moments before his body is tortured because of his final stand against tyranny. Or maybe uh, Star Wars, for you Star Wars fans in the room. Obi-Wan Kenobi in his final epic lightsaber battle with Darth Vader says, You can't win, Darth. If you strike me down, I'll become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. And if you finish the saga and watch the rest of the movies, you know that, that actually happens the way he predicts it would. At the end of our lives, the things that we say, the things that we do, the things that happen towards the end of our lives often leave a legacy. It often is how we're remembered, and we're getting close to the end of Deuteronomy. In fact, we'll end our study through Deuteronomy next week. And we see that Moses, in his final words of his farewell address, he wants to make sure that the main thing is the main thing. And so Moses enters this final section of his charge, final section of his sermon, if you will, And he's going to teach them about what it means to be in covenant with God. What it means for the people of Israel to be walking faithfully in covenant with the God who has rescued them. And so for us this morning, we realize as a New Testament church that Christ has accomplished this in the cross for us. What Israel couldn't do, what we couldn't and wouldn't do, Christ did. He brought us into covenant with the creator of the universe. And so very near the end of his life, possibly even bedridden, Uh, thinking about chapter 38, verse 1, where he says he could no longer go out and come in. Moses is 120 years old, and he wants to instruct them on how they should live in the land as God's covenant people. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Deuteronomy chapter 29. We'll be looking at chapters 29, 30, and 31 this morning. And as you're turning, I'll give us a bit of a recap for those that are guests with us this morning, or if you haven't been with us in a while. We've been studying through the, the book of Deuteronomy, going chapter by chapter, and we've seen at the beginning of our study that Moses gives uh, the people of Israel uh, a history lesson. God's revealed it to Moses that he would not be able to enter into the land with Israel as a result of his own sin. And so he's going to give them one final charge, a farewell address, and that is the book of Deuteronomy. And so he teaches them their history, the way their parents rebelled and failed to follow God, and as a result, the consequences of their sin. And then he moves into a section where he begins to give them specific rules principles that they should live by. And at the beginning, they're very uh, general rules like love the Lord your God, remember the Lord your God, worship the Lord your God. And then they get more and more specific where in the last 15 chapters, we've been looking at these principles as he gives us great detail, very specific detail about how they are to follow God. And we see the warnings, the blessing for obedience and the curse for disobedience and what God expected out of his people. And now Moses has brought us to a a conclusion for that section of the book where he's wrapped up this section on principles and laws that they should live by, rules that they should follow, and now he's giving us his last words, his final charge, his final uh, thoughts to the Israelite people, and he brings them to the covenant. He brings them to think about their relationship to God and this relationship that exists as covenant between a people, a nation, Israel, and 
Israel's God. And so look at Deuteronomy chapter 29. This morning we'll have seven observations or seven things that we learn about being in covenant with God. So starting in verse 1. These are the words of the covenant that the Lord commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant that he made with them at Horeb. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, you have, all seen, you have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that, you, that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. I have led, led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you and your sandals have not worn off your feet. You have not eaten bread and you have not drunk wine or strong drink that you may know that I am the Lord your God. And when you came to this place, Sihon the king of Heshbon and Og the king of Bashan came out against us to battle, but we defeated them. And we took their land and gave it for an inheritance to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half tribe of the Manassites. Therefore, keep the word of this covenant and do them, that you may prosper in all that you do. So in the first part of chapter 29, we see that Moses is giving them a, a renewal of the covenant. He's, he's instructing them on how they should renew their covenant before the Lord. And so for us this morning, it's, it's applicable for us that we should renew our covenant before the Lord. If you're his, if you have surrendered your life to Christ, if he has saved you and, and purchased you by the blood of his son, then you are in relationship, covenant relationship with God. And it's helpful and right for us to renew that relationship. Well, what does that mean? Well, the Bible talks about us being saved. It's an ongoing process. This is sanctification, that daily we're made and conformed into the image of Christ. That every day we live on this earth as believers, we should be looking more and more like his son Jesus. And so certainly, uh, there's nothing that could snatch us from the hand of God. Uh, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. So his end of the deal is rock steady. It's unshakable. There's nothing. It's founded upon the blood of his own son. And there's nothing that can separate us from his love if we are in Christ. But our end of the covenant, we're not rock steady. We're not unshakable. We're still wrapped in this human flesh. And as a result, we are going to fall astray. We're going to be disobedient from time to time. We're not going to walk in perfect communion and, and fellowship with our father. And so it's right and good for us to renew this covenant, this commitment to him daily. It's not that we would lose our salvation. It's that we would come before God and say, God, I've messed up. God, would you draw me back to yourself? Would you forgive my sins? Would you make me whole and right and in, in fellowship with you again? And we do this even as a church body. That's what we do in communion. In the ordinance of communion or the Lord's Supper, we're joining together as the church and saying, God, as a body, we want to renew our commitment and our covenant to you, God. We want you to walk with us and we want you to draw our hearts back to you. We do this in a Lord's Day worship service like this. Every time we meet on a Sunday, it's a festival. It's a celebration of Christ's resurrection. And in that, we as the church body say, God, would you, would you renew? Would you renew my heart? And would you draw me back to yourself? Would you convict of sin? And would you demonstrate, God, where I've walked away from you? And so briefly, let's look at, again, seven steps, seven ideas, seven things that this covenant relationship would mean for Israel and for us as a New Testament church, as the covenant people of God. So number one, we see the why of the covenant. The why of the covenant. You see it in verses 1 through 9. Look at verse 2. And you have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes. Verse 3, the great trials that your eyes saw. 
Verse 4, but to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. It almost sounds like it's contradicting itself that you have seen and yet you do not see. You've seen with your eyes, but you don't get it. You see, but you really don't see spiritually. It sounds a lot like what Jesus would often say to those following him in his ministry. Ephesians 1.18, though, says, Having the eyes of your heart enlightened. That's a strange sentence. Our heart having eyes. We, we draw hearts in grade school and elementary school, and I don't know that we've ever seen a kid draw a heart that had eyeballs in it, but the idea here in 18 is that, and if you continue reading, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? So Israel, why do you have covenant with God? What's the why of the covenant? It's, it's, it's because God initiated with you a relationship, a covenant relationship by his mercy and his love. He extended covenant to you. That's why you have relationship. Because in your blindness, God was drawing you to himself. And we see how he did this even in these verse, first nine verses. He rescued you. He defeated Pharaoh. He showed you signs and wonders. He led you in the wilderness. He fed you in the wilderness. He made it so your shoes did not wear out. Don't just pass over that like that's insignificant. These folks are walking around a desert climate, a rocky terrain with incredible heat. The fact that their shoes didn't fall off their feet is an incredible statement. Their clothes didn't wear out. Israel, Moses would say, Look at all of the evidence that God has given you for his love towards you. The fact that he initiated covenant with you while you were blind and had no love for God, had no thoughts toward God. He was bringing you, drawing you into relationship and covenant with himself by his own grace. Popular Spring, can I tell you the same thing? Look at all the evidence you have for the love of God, for the grace and mercy of God initiating covenant with you. He's given you his complete, authoritative, inerrant word that by his word you can know exactly what he has for us to know about him. He's revealed himself. He's revealed his son in the Bible. We can look back at Christ's death on the cross and when we do, we see that God was taking initiative to save us. He was offering his son so that we could be in covenant relationship with him. And further, by his spirit, he drew you so that you could see with spiritual eyes. He gave you the ability to see your sin and your separation from God and a savior who died on a cross for you. God's doing all of that. He's extending covenant to us while we were still sinners. You need no further evidence, friends. You need no further explanation. We see that in, in the death of Christ, God was giving his son so that there could be a covenant relationship. You don't have to be a slave to your addictions. You don't have to be a, a slave or bound by your sin any longer. Covenant relationship with the God of the universe is available to us in Christ. And so if you're feeling tired, if you're feeling weary, if you're feeling away from God, if you're feeling bound by sin or lonely, remember why you have covenant with God. Because he's loved you and he's reached out to you. And he's initiated covenant with you and brought you into his family. But not only the why of the covenant, second we see the who of the covenant. Look at verses 10 through 15. You are standing today, all of you, before the Lord your God. The heads of your tribes, your elders and your officers. All the men of Israel. Your little ones, your wives and the sojourner who is in your camp. From the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water, so that you may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is making with you today. 
that he may establish you today as his people, and that he may be your God as he's promised you and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. It is not with you alone that I am making this sworn covenant, but with whoever is standing here with us today before the Lord our God, and with whoever is not standing, or who is not here with us today. So who is he talking about? Who would be the who of the covenant? It's all of Israel. It's everyone that's gathered there. And he breaks it down in verse 10. And he says, says the leaders are brought into this covenant. The heads of the tribes, the elders, the officers, all the men of Israel. Why would he say men of Israel? Why would he include them in this grouping in verse 10? It's because they were to be leaders. It's because they were to be leaders in their home and in their marriages. So side note for a minute, church family. Men, how are you doing? How are you doing leading your home? How are you doing leading your family? It's hard work. It's discipline in the, for your children is hard work. Consistency in parenting is hard work. But dads, you're expected to lead in your family. How are we doing? Do they see you walking with the Lord? Do they see you spending time with him? Do they see you in communion with the Father? Be willing, dads, to be unpopular with your kids if that's what it takes to raise them according to biblical standards. Too many dads today want to be best friends with their kids and not a father figure who would enforce discipline in the word of God. You're expected to lead men, so lead. But not just leaders. If you continue in verse 11, it goes beyond the officers, the elders, the, the, the men, and it includes everyone. Everybody, little children, wives, travelers, servants, they were all invited into this covenant relationship with God. And then you get to verse 14 and 15, and it's not just everybody, it's future everybody's. This is incredibly good news. Look at verse 14. It is not with you alone that I'm making this sworn covenant, but with whoever's standing here. Whatever, whatever servant, whatever other outsider, whatever Gentile may be standing here, it's, it's with them. If they would today, before the Lord our God, be here. And with whoever is not here with us today. That's an incredible statement. That you and I were not at Moab that day. As far as I can tell. I think we have anybody that was at Moab that day. But it was for you. That in that day when God uh, was, was giving this commandment and this covenant renewal with Israel. He had Poplar Spring Baptist Church on his mind. He had you on his mind. When he was offering and initiating an everlasting covenant with mankind thousands of years ago. You were there on his mind and heart. What incredible good news that is for us. That we were not even a thought in our mother's or grandparents or great-grandparents' mind. And God had us on his mind. Not only the who of the covenant. Number three, the how of the covenant. Look at verses 16 through 29. We won't read that section in its entirety, but in verse 17 it says this. You have seen their detestable things, their idols, it says. So the how of the covenant includes walking with Yahweh. Israel was expected to walk with, uh, with Yahweh, and it meant a rejection of idols in their, in their culture and a, and a rejection of their idols in their hearts. And you see this in verse 18. Both of these ideas played out. Verse 18a, obvious, blatant idolatry. It says this, Beware, lest there be one whose heart is turning away from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of um, the nations, of those nations. So God's saying, do not worship other gods. Do not go after other religions. Don't follow other uh, pagan practices. But then you get to 18b, and it's not just blatant idolatry, it's subtle, self-deceiving idolatry as well. 18b, the second half of verse 18. 
Beware lest there be one among you, be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the word of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. And this will lead to the sweeping away of the moist and the dry alike. God's saying here to Israel, don't pretend. You want to be a pretender? God's going to call you out for being a pretender. Don't just convince yourself that you're okay. It says this, he calls them a root. Why would he do that? Because a root lays beneath the soil, below the surface, and you can't tell what it is until it begins to grow and bear fruit. God says, I know what you are. I know where you're at. They've convinced themselves they're okay, but God says you are absolutely not okay. So for most of us in, this mor- in the room this morning, we're probably not facing much temptation with blatant idolatry, following after other gods or other religions, other world faiths, other pagan practices. But I would bet that most of us in the room this morning have convinced ourselves that that little sin in our heart is not that big of a deal, that we don't have to deal with it right away, that it's, it's not hurting anyone if I just keep this quiet and I'll quit doing it eventually. God says, Beware. So the how of the covenant is faithful obedience to Yahweh, which includes identifying and cutting off or doing away with idolatry. But it's further. It goes further than that. Verses 22 through 28, you see that they're called to believe the consequences of idolatry. Look at verse 24 and 25. All the nations will say then, why has the Lord done thus to the land? What caused the heat of this great anger? And the people will say it is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord. God's demonstrating to them here that not only should they, should they to be in, in covenant relationship with God, deal with the idols in their hearts and in, in their culture around them, but they should believe that there are consequences for following after these idols. And God's revealed it to them that in that day, when that happens, there will be a, a great heat, a great anger against you, so much so that the other nations are going to recognize it. And you better believe that. So what is the how? It's being aware of idolatries. It's believing in the consequences of idolatry. But finally, it goes further than that. It also includes belief in the word of God. Look at verse 29. It says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children, that that we may do all the words of this law. So there are some secret things that belong to God. And we may never understand those secret things this side of eternity. Have you ever felt like that? That, God, I just don't understand why you would allow this. I don't understand why this circumstance would come into my life. God, I don't understand if you're good and if you're all-powerful why this would happen. Those belong to the secret things of God, and we may never understand them. But, (laughs) there's a a comma and a really, really incredible but right there in the middle of that verse. But, verse 29, but the things revealed belong to us and to our kids that we may do all the words of this law. So instead of dwelling on the secret things, the things that we may never understand, instead of getting bitter about the things that we can't wrap our heads around, let's ask better questions, church family. Let's ask the questions that lead us to the things that he has given us answers for. Like, God, how have you told me to to love my neighbor? How have you told me to steward my time and my money and my resources? How have you told me to love my spouse? How have you told me to raise my kids? We go for those uh, answers. We go to the book. We go to the word. Just like Israel was told here. These secret things belong to the Lord, but there's revealed stuff, and it belongs to us so that we can do them. 
The expectation is the same for us, church family. When we wrestle with these questions, we go to the book, we go to the Word of God, and we say, God, what am I to learn here? How should I live in light of what you're teaching me in the Scriptures? So the how of the covenant includes obedience to the Word of God. It's trusting in His Word. So this covenant relationship that Israel and that we have with God, we're expected to cut off idolatry, deal with idolatry that surrounds us. We're told to trust the consequences, believe that there are consequences for sin and for idolatry. But we're also told to believe his word. And so that's why we teach it and preach it at Poplar Spring. That's why your Sunday school classes, your Sunday school teachers are teaching the word of God so that we may know what he said because we're accountable for it. Number four, we see the result of the covenant. Verses 1 through 10 of chapter 30. Chapter 30, verses 1 through 10. God here, and we're not going to read this entire section, but God here is anticipating their disobedience. Though he has been long-suffering and though he has shown them numerous times the details of this covenant and the specific requirements of this covenant, he anticipates that they will not abide. And they don't. And side note, we won't either, and we haven't. And so then you get to verses 2 and 3. We ask God to show us the result of this covenant, this relationship we have with him. Look at verse 2 and 3. Return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, that the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. What is the result of this covenant? It's that we would realize our sin, realize our wickedness and our waywardness, and we would return to the Lord. So when you find yourself living in disobedience, when you find yourself discouraged, when you find yourself humiliated at the wickedness in your own heart, then finally, then and only then, are you beginning to grasp the beauty of the gospel. That we would see in ourselves a separation that we can't overcome and that our righteousness, there is none and there's nothing in us that would plead our case before a holy God. There's no merit in us that would uh, lend God to forgive us and to offer us eternal life. But only in Christ, only as we return to God and say, God, would you forgive me of my sins and would you through the blood of your son save me? Have we returned to God? And then verse 2, once you've returned, once you return all these commands, we have a word for this. It's repentance. Means that if we would confess our sins and turn from them, go a different direction, He will forgive us. And we see what happens as a result. When we return to the Lord, verse 2, He brings about restoration, verse 3. Then the Lord will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. What does this restoration look like? Verses 3 through 5. Restoration doesn't matter how far you've gone or where you are. Verse 3. Gather, gather, he will gather you from all peoples where he has scattered you. Verse 4, from the uttermost parts of heaven. So no matter where you have gone as a result of your sin, no matter what kind of mess you've found yourself in, no matter how far from the Lord you've gone, no matter how far sin has led you, he will restore you. In covenant relationship with him, he is a father who is waiting to restore you and to forgive you if you will but return to him and confess your sins, repent of your sins. Think about even in the word of God in the Old Testament, you have Jonah. Think about how far he had gone and how far his sins had taken him. He was in the belly of a fish. And even there, he was not abandoned by God. God knew where he was at. So restoration happens or can happen no matter where you are. Verses 5 through 9, restoration brings you back to a place better than you were before. Look at verse 5. 
and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And then again in verse 9, the Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand and the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your cattle and the fruit of your ground. So as a result of restoration, God brings, as his, his work, by his grace, he brings you to a better place than you were before. And that, friends, doesn't make sense. That God would love us so much, not only that he would offer us forgiveness, not only that he would forgive, forgive us of our sins by his grace, but that after that restoration and after we've been brought back into communion with him, it's better than it was before. Now, that doesn't mean that everything's going to be right and we're going to have a better house or a better car or a better job or a better salary. But it does mean that when we repent, when we return, verse 2, and he restores us, verse 3, that we are closer to him. That we're more like Christ as a result of that sin being purged from our life. That we're more sensitive to his spirit than we were before because of the absence of that sin in our life. That when we return, he restores us and it's better than it was before because we're walking in closer communion with him. Number five, only the result of the covenant, but the availability of the covenant. Look at verses 11 through 20. Oftentimes I think Folks complicate the gospel. They make things too difficult, too confusing, too hard to understand. You've got to know 19 theological words, and you've got to have the understanding of of all these intricate details to enter into covenant with God. Look what God says in verse 11. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say who will go over the sea and for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. It's not too hard. It's not too far off. Instead, it's near to you so that you can do it. You don't have to have this mindset that only the preacher, only a seminary student, only an academic, only someone that's in the academy can understand this stuff. God says that he's given us his word. He's given us this commandment, and it is available to you. And more than that, closer than it even was to them, he has let in, in, in his son, in the word of God, in the flesh, come and walk among us. And as a result, his son has died on the cross, and we see the word. He is, he's been among us, and he's died on the cross for us. It's available to us in the son. And so because of its availability, what will you choose? Verse 15 through 20. Look at verse 15. Moses says, I've said before you, life and good and death and evil. Verse 16, that if you will obey, then you will live and multiply. Verse 17, but if your heart turns away, then verse 18, you shall surely perish. So Israel's been given this command to obey, and they must decide to be obedient. They've been told what brings good and blessing and what brings curse and disobedience, and it's for them to decide what they will choose and as we've said almost every week in Deuteronomy, but let me remind you again, Israel fails miserably. Israel chooses disobedience, and as a result, they are brought into captivity. They are conquered by their enemies, and they perished. Let me tell you the rest of the story, though, as Paul Harvey would say. We've chosen disobedience, too. Every one of us in this room this morning have chosen to rebel. We've chosen to disobey from the perfect standard and law that God has given us. And as a result, we've chosen sin, and we are, verse 18, surely destined to perish. Friends, that's terrible news. That's the most horrible death sentence a man could be given, is that because of our own sin, we're separated from a holy God for eternity. 
Oh, but friends, there's a beautiful gospel. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2. But God, rich in mercy because of his great love which he has loved us, that even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Friends, we like Israel chose disobedience. We chose rebellion. We chose our own sin. And as a result, we were destined to perish. But by God's grace, and by the death of his son, we can have life. That's good news. Because of the availability of this covenant for Israel. Look what Moses does in verse 19. Because of this availability, Moses says, Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. So as a dying man, Moses is pleading with them, begging with them, choose life, Israel. Choose life, brothers and sisters. Imagine with me this morning that you have a friend or a family member that's contracted a a life-ending disease, a life-threatening disease, and you have the remedy, you have the cure, you have what will heal them of this disease. And maybe your friend or your loved one knows it, and they don't care, or maybe they have no idea that there is, is a remedy, that there is a cure for this disease. Wouldn't you plead with them? Wouldn't you beg if necessary for them to take the cure, for them to apply the remedy? Friends, this morning, every one of us has friends, neighbors, or family members that are not a part of this covenant relationship with God. And that is a much more serious thing than an incurable disease. An incurable disease would just kill your physical body, which is really only going to last 100 years, maybe at best, 120 years at best. The consequences of our disobedience means that We will have eternal death, never-ending death. And we know the cure. We know the remedy. Christ has died for sins. That if man will confess his sins and call upon the name of Jesus, he'll be saved. We must be willing to plead and beg for people to choose life. It was that important for Moses that on his deathbed, the last thing he's thinking is, please, Israel, please choose life. Choose this God who loves you and who has by his grace initiated covenant with you. Are we that serious about begging and pleading with folks to hear the word of God and repent of sins? Number six, not only availability of the covenant, but number six, we see the gift of leaders to those who are in covenant. To be clear before we even read this section, as those who are in covenant with God, we worship him alone. Only he is worthy of our devotion. Moses wasn't for Israel. No preacher, no bishop, no pope. No teacher today is worthy of our devotion, and yet he gives us leaders, earthly leaders, to guide us as the covenant family of God. Look at verse 1 of chapter 31. So Moses continued to speak these words to all Israel, and he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I am no longer able to go out and to come in. And the Lord has said to me, you shall not go over this Jordan The Lord your God himself will go over before you. He will destroy the nations before you so that you shall dispossess them. And Joshua will go over at your head as the Lord has spoken. Skip down to verse 7. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Skip down to verse 14. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold the day's approach when you must die. Call Joshua and present yourselves 
in the tent of meeting that I may commission him. And Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tent of meeting. And the Lord appeared in the tent in a pillar of cloud, and the pillar of cloud stood over the entrance of the tent. So what we see in chapter 31 is that God has revealed to Moses that he is a dying man and he will die soon. His death is approaching, but his death, don't miss this church family, Moses' death as their prophet, as their leader, did not mean that God's presence would leave. That the prophet Moses was not the source of their confidence, yet God's presence was the source of their confidence. And so a new leader, Josh, is going to come and lead them into the fulfillment of this promise, specifically land here. So verse 7, you see that he's assuring them of this. He assures them of the promise that they will take possession of the land. It's going to happen. Then verse 8, he assures them that he's going to go before them, that God will be before them, and as a result of that, they'll have no need to fear. And then verse 15, as if God's word and his statement of uh, the, the surety of their land and the surety of him being in their presence at their head is not enough. Verse 15, God gives his presence to them in a physical tangible pillar of cloud where God says, I am with you. So for us this morning, I want you to hear me clearly. I want you to make sure that you hear me clearly. I am in no way drawing a correlation between Pastor Stephen and Moses and me and Joshua. There are obvious reasons that I'm not making that correlation, right? We don't wish Pastor Stephen to be dead. But, (laughs) but... We have lost a couple of our spiritual leaders in the last few months. And we praise God that he's working in their lives and that he's brought their families to new places of ministry and he's using them in new places for his glory. We praise God for that. But what I do want you to hear me say is as tough as it is to lose a part of our body, that's what they are. Pastor Stephen for almost 19 years, Pastor Steve and his family for almost eight. They're a part of our body. And so when a part of your body is amputated, you miss it. It hurts. You feel the, the, the result of that piece of your body leaving. And so we, we do. We love the Wades and we love the Chromies and we miss them. We're thankful that, 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 uh, that um, Catherine was able to be here last week and worship with us. Pastor Stephen will be here tonight to worship with us at the baptism service. And we're thankful for that. And so even though we've lost a part of our spiritual leadership, we've lost a part of our body. Hear me closely, church family. We've not lost the presence of the Lord. Just as he told Israel, I will be with you. I will go before you. I will be at the head. God, guys, he's our head. He is the head of the church, and he's not left us, and he will not forsake us. He is with Pablo Spring, and he's leading us, and he's guiding us. And furthermore, he's given us the blessing of continued leadership. That's the advantage of having a plurality of elders. Jay and Brother Bobby and Wiley, they're our elders, and they're continuing to shepherd us. They're continuing to lead us. God's gracious that he would give us that continued leadership. And not only that, he's given us great deacons. So even, even more than that, we've got three, three new deacons that we just interviewed last week that will be ordained as deacons in Adam and Paul and Dennis. And we had their time of interview and questioning last week, and it was, it was great that those men articulating the gospel and sharing their love for, for leading in the church and serving in the church. God's given us great leadership. Not only that, we have a full roster of Sunday school teachers and ministry leaders that we're going to vote on in a few moments. For the 2017-2018 church year, God is gracious that he would have us a continual roster of leaders that are leading our Bible studies and our growth groups. God has blessed us richly, even in a transition, even in a time where there there could have been uh, hardships and and, and a loss of, 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 of people and feelings. 
that God would give us spiritual leaders to continue the work that he started here at Poplar Spring. God is faithful in that way. So he's given us the gift of earthly leaders, spiritual leaders for the people in covenant with him. Number seven, and lastly, we see the gift of law and song for a covenant people. The gift of law and song for covenant people. So in addition to this theme of leadership change in chapter 31, Deuteronomy 31, that, that's the main shift that you see there taking place is that Moses is passing the baton to Joshua. And God said to do it, and then God anoints it and puts his presence there with them as they're going through this leadership transition. But there's another major theme that comes up in 31 that I think we need to see. And that's that Moses is doing a lot of writing in his final days, maybe even his final hours. You see it in verse 9, that Moses wrote this law. And then verse 19 The Lord said, now for write this song. And then verse 24, when Moses had finished the words of writing the words of this law. Well, what is it that Moses is writing and why is it so important? Why would he spend his final days writing so much? Well, it's two things. First, it's the law. It's the commandment or the word of God. And we see this in verse 10. He wrote the law so that Israel would have this regular time, and for them it was a frequent, regular seven-year period of public reading of the law so that they wouldn't forget, so that they would know what God said to them and so that they could obey. So that's the idea. They're hearing, reading the law for the purpose of obeying the law. And then verse 13, that you may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. The case is the same with us this morning, church family. God has given us his law. He's given us his word. He's given us the Bible so that we can know him and so that we can obey him. We read, we study the Bible so that we can know and obey. And it's only by the precious word of God that we can come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Praise God that he has given us his word that we might know him. He's not left us in the dark. He's not left us ignorant of himself, but he has revealed himself in his word. We can't know him by our feelings. We can't know him by our own intuitions or our own imagination. That's creating other gods for ourselves, which is idolatry. But he's revealed himself to us in his word, and we should thank him for that. That's why we stand on the word of God. It's the only way we can know him. But there's a second thing Moses is writing, and that's a song. You see it in verse 19 and verse 30. It talks about this song that Moses is composing. And so we'll get into that song next week. That's how we wrap up the book of Deuteronomy. We'll study the details of that song next week. But this is sort of like a prelude to the song. Spoiler alert, it's not a real happy song. We'll see that next week. Why would God utilize a song in the conclusion of Deuteronomy? Again, setting up for next week, what we're going to be studying as we see the details of the song. Look at verse 19. The song is to be taught. Verse 19 again, the song is a witness for God. It describes what God sees in Israel. Verse 21, the song confronts them. Verse 21 again, the song will live unforgotten in their mouths, in the mouths of their offspring. And then again, verse 30, the song was for the ears of all the assembly of Israel. And so God gives Moses this song for the people because music Song has the unique ability to do these things, to accomplish these things that he said in verse 19, verse 21, and verse 30. Music teaches us. That's why it's important, friends, that we sing theologically accurate songs, gospel-saturated songs that speak to us in the lyrics of the song what Christ did on our behalf. Music confronts us. It convicts us. That's why it's important that we sing together when we meet for corporate worship. 
That as we sing the truth of the gospel, our hearts become convicted and we're confronted with our sin. When we sing about a a hill called Calvary, we see us as the reason for that hill. That our sins brought Christ to the cross. That's the only way we can have forgiveness. So it confronts our sin. It convicts us. Music lives on in our minds and in our mouths. It's not easily forgotten. You ever had a song just get stuck in your head? Maybe even a song that you don't really like. It's an annoying song. And it's just there all day. And you're just sitting in the silence of your office or in your shop working. And that song just keeps going in your head. And you're like, man, I wish I'd get that song out of my head. Why can't I get another song in my head? Music does that. And so when we sing gospel-saturated songs, when we sing the scriptures, when we sing the truth of God's word, it gives an opportunity for our hearts to be daily filled with the word of God as we fight for joy, as we fight for purity in our walk with Christ, as we try to kill sin in our hearts, we're singing confessions of our faith. Music does that for us. And then verse 30, music's for our ears, for all the assembly. So it's biblical and good and right for us to come together as the people of God in a room like this and sing songs of praise, to lift up songs before the Lord. In unison, all of our voices joining together and confessing who God is and what he's done for us. That's a good thing for us to do. It's right and good for us to do. And though the tunes may change, as they did this morning, I like that. Though the tunes may change, though the style of music may change, that's what he's given us the gift of song for. It's to not unite our hearts as our voices are being united and lifting up Christ in gospel proclamation through music. So we sing one song. Even if, even if the style and the, 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 the temperature of the music and the, the, the pace of the music, the cadence of the music, though it may change, we sing one song, and that's the song of our great God. And we express it in different lyrics, but we lift up the name of God in our music. He's given us the gift of law and song as a covenant people. So this morning, we've talked a lot about the covenant Seven things that we see for a covenant people, for Israel as a covenant people of God, and for us as the church today. But here's the question, friends. Do you know him? And do you have a covenant relationship with him? You would know the answer to that question, just like I know my wife, because we're in covenant together. We're married. This morning is the Spirit of God convincing you, showing you that you have this covenant relationship with the God of the universe? Or this morning you're like, I don't even know what this is is about. I don't know what he's talking about. Friends, the greatest thing in all the world would be for you today to surrender your life to Christ, repent of your sins, and put your faith and trust in him and enter into a covenant relationship with a God who loves you and has given his son upon a cross to have a relationship with you. So this this morning as we respond, as Jesse comes and we sing, that's the invitation this morning. If you don't know him, to confess your sins and put your faith and trust in his finished work on the cross for salvation. Enter into covenant with him today. Enter into this marriage-type relationship where he is all you have and you have surrendered everything you have to him. And friends, if you are in covenant relationship with him, if you are a part of even this body of Christ, or if you're here with a, a, a group of people and you're a part of another body of Christ, this morning celebrate that God has brought you to himself that he's initiated and established a covenant with you by the blood of his son. We should never get over that truth. So let's stand, church family, and sing. If this morning God's convicted you and showed you that you are not in relationship with him, you don't have a covenant relationship with him, please find me after the service. We're going to celebrate and worship through song right now as we sing together. But I'll be around after the service. Would you come and find me and just say, hey, I want to know more about what it means to enter this relationship with God.
I'd love to pray with you and talk through what that looks like. Let's respond and worship him now together.